Hi, I'm Adam Russell. I am the newly minted division director of the AI division of the University of Southern California's Information Sciences Institute. Uh, full disclosure, I'm also an anthropologist, which means that I'm interested in the intersection of AI and humans. And in particular, I'm interested in the humans who are behind AI. As part of my role as a division director, I'm doing my best to get to know everybody in this space, my colleagues here at ISI. And I'm doing that partly one, because I'm genuinely interested in the amazing colleagues I have. That's why I'm here. But two, because I think there's some really important information to be had by understanding the people who are actually doing the AI. There's, of course, Time's 100 Most Influential People, and that's fine. These are names that most people will recognize. Jeff Hinton, Yoshua Bengio, Sam Altman. But then there are also the people who are, for lack of a better term, in the trenches. The people who are actually doing this, uh, who are in the space well before ChatGPT blew up. These, I think, are people that are as much, if not more, of an indicator of where we've come from, where we are right now, and hopefully where we're headed, because they roll their sleeves up, get to work, and get it done. So I'm going to take this opportunity as I watch my next guest roll up his sleeves as if to make the point. Take this opportunity to introduce folks to those humans behind AI. My guest today is Gleb Sachikov. Gleb does have information on our website. There is publicly available information about his background, his bio, which is why I'm not going to read it because what's the point? You can find that. And to my mind, that's interesting, but doesn't tell me a whole lot about, uh, you know, who is Gleb Sachikov? So, Gleb, I'd like to start off here, uh, if you don't mind, with a, a little bit of a thought experiment. Sure. We're going to go back in time, uh, and we're going to find your six-year-old self. Uh, where, first of all, where in the world is six-year-old Gleb? Oh, that would have been in Russia back when I grew up and before I moved to Holland when I was around 10 years old. Okay, interesting. So we're, we're back in, in Russia with six-year-old Gleb, uh, who recognizes you obviously as future self and says, you know, well, what are we doing? And you now have the opportunity to explain to six-year-old Gleb, what, what are you doing? Well, the technical term is I'm a senior research engineer at ISI, but what it really means, in, and especially to explain it to my six-year-old self, right? I am helping researchers at ISI in terms of facilitating and implementing their designs and for research projects. So communicating science is probably the most generic way of explaining this. So I do wonder if my six-year-old self would still understand that description. Mm -hmm. Gleb is kind of a secret sauce in some ways to projects. You come in, you work with people to help them realize these things, make them robust, reliable. It almost sounds vaguely like a superhero sort of showing up. And I, I know you're not positioning yourself as that. Uh, I know you, uh, you know, far, far too humble, but um but I need your origin story as a superhero. Where do, where do you think you get the superpower from? I think it comes down to when I was a high school senior, is I think how you say that in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, we were tasked with finding out what it is that we want to study as an undergrad, right? And I had a hard time figuring that out. So I went with something that sounded very generic to me. At the time, it was called lifestyle informatics. And there were different directions you could take within that study one of them being uh, human ambience, where you would help humans in their daily lives to improve their daily lives by using technology or artificial intelligence or any of the combinations thereof. The other one was more of a hardcore computer science program. And so being able to sort of pick and choose classes that really helped me 
and identifying what it is that I'm more interested in. At the same time, though, I think it developed a very broad scope of understanding of these different fields and being able to find the overlaps between them. Hmm. Do you think um, one of the hypotheses I'm developing as I get to meet people at ISI is that uh, there are aliens among us? Uh, and these aliens are, are folks who've traveled different worlds and that um, that's important. Yeah, certainly geographical mobility, I think, is important and being able to sort of connect the distance and being able to travel, being able to experience life in different continents is, is a big one. Uh, I, I don't know how much overall it played in my particular upbringing, but I think it is important. Yeah, for sure. So what if you weren't doing this and this being, you know, at ISI being the sort of research engineer, what what would you be doing? I think I still would be involved in computer science one way or the other, probably working on something that's not AI related, however, still working on implementation, design, development, uh, maintenance of some kind of an, an abstract infrastructure for a uh, a company that maybe was doing e-learning. I guess I guess that's kind of an AI. No, it's fun. I mean, but but education, you'd be genuine. Would you do you teach? Yes, I'm teaching a class on Python that is for the introduction to data science in programming concepts in Python for data science 510. What's the best part about teaching from your perspective? Oh gosh, that definitely would be getting that aha moment from the students when they when the concepts that you're trying to convey actually click. I am fortunate that our class is mostly consistent of students from all sorts of other disciplines who are way smarter than me. <laughs> and they're just trying to learn how to apply their programming concepts into their own studies, uh, into their own projects, whatever that may be. And uh, I just happen to know something that I can teach them in that space. No, it's really, really rewarding. So you're actually, you're empowering them to be able to do the things they want to do by virtue of teaching these. I certainly hope so. We're back to your super, superpower. I'm seeing a, a trend here. What, um, What's the hardest part about teaching? I would be coming up with a coherent set of uh, materials and slides that we are preparing every week. It takes much more time than I thought it would when I started. <laughs> If you care, right? If you care there, I've had some teachers, I think I'm not sure they cared, but yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you mentioned science communication, you like teaching. What, what do your friends and family think about what you're doing? I think most of them are supportive and proud of me mm -hmm. being in a field that is so much in the news these days. They feel sort of connected to the news that way. The other thing I was thinking is that my uh, grandparents and law specifically there in the 90s, they keep asking me what I do every single Christmas. And uh, I keep explaining this over and over again with a slight deviation, but it's almost the same thing every time. Uh, do you haven't had anybody say like, what are you doing? You're you're <laughs> you're going to kill us all? No, there's definitely some skeptics in the extended family, but uh, no, no, it's all good. <laughs> or alternatively, this will never work. That's yeah. It's it's interesting how people hold very strong opinions about futures. Where if we've learned anything from things like forecasting, and I think you've done some work in that space, is w we need to be really humble about our ability to see what's what's coming down the line. 
a um, couple of uh, uh, we call it the speed round. It's all right. The uh, I don't know if you you know the Voight-Kampff test from Blade Runner. Uh, if you've seen that movie or read the book, they have this test that's meant to determine whether you're human or replicant. Right, replicants are sort of. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie, but I'm ready for the speed round. Let's do it. Okay, well, so here we go. We're going to go with the Russell Kampf test, which is I'm going to ask probably even dumber questions, and we're going to determine whether or not you're human. <laughs> First one, uh, can you say AI 10 times in under five seconds? Go. Oh, no. I think that's, isn't that like Beetlejuice? The AI will manifest itself. <laughs> you're, you're, worried about, you're worried you're going to conjure up AI? As yeah. Gonna, it's, no, let's not risk it. I, I didn't. Uh, okay. I didn't, didn't see that coming. Point, point for human there. <laughs> uh, can I blame AI for the fact that I seem to always lose a sock in the dryer? Discuss. No, because it's actually the washer. It's the washer. Yeah, that's... Go into this. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying the washer is the source of? Okay, I'm intrigued. Yeah, there's these little holes that you know suck up the water at the end of the cycle, and typically the socks get stuck into one of those at the top of the washer. Oh, I think it's a common misconception. People think it's the dryer. It's actually the washer. Yeah, I, I feel so bad. I, I'm going to afterwards have to apologize uh, profusely to my, my to the dryer. dryer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How do you um? How would you recommend people try to keep up with what's happening? You mentioned science communication. What, what would you recommend for sort of smart but non-expert folks? To me, it's almost uh, I almost want to turn this question around. I'm like, how do you not keep up with it? Because it's everywhere these days. Even the uh, the screen in the elevators just told me something new about AI this morning. So I would say maybe uh, I would recommend following some dedicated AI communities on Reddit probably is the best way to stay up with the developments for layman folks. All right. That's a, that's a, you, <laughs> because sometimes what, what's conveyed in the headlines, of course, can be can be very uh, very misleading for obvious reasons. Though it's always about the comments, not necessarily the headlines, right? Interesting. Okay. Dig into the comments. Well, okay. Let's yeah. Let's see sure. what there. Um, what is a concept that needs to die in AI? What, what is one that just, just needs to be removed from our collective consciousness? This is arguably the easiest question you've asked me so far. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be one of those recaptchas where they're asking me to find all the traffic lights in a picture or rotate a dog into its correct position. Just feel like the AI should be able to figure this out already. That just needs to go. Like We're, we're done. Thanks. There's yeah, we're, we're done correcting traffic lights and motor, fighting motorcycles. <laughs> um, if you created a large language model or an AI assistant and you can't say Jarvis, what would you name your assistant and why? <laughs> I would call it a smart cookie because it <laughs> provides you with plausible deniability. Every time it gives you the wrong answer, you can call it a little cookie. That's a nice play on words. Well done. How many languages do you speak? Well, I used to uh, speak five or six, but some of them I already forgot. So I haven't been practicing much, I have to say. Interesting. There's um there's an anthropologist or an anthropological theory called the Sapir Whorf hypothesis. You may have heard of it, which is that it's easier to think about things if your language has a word for it versus not. Um in the extreme people have argued, well that means if you don't have a word for it, you can't think of that. That's clearly not true. It's been empirically pretty pretty disproven. But given the number of languages you've you you speak or, or have spoken um, do you think there's something to that, that it's easier to think about certain kinds of um, 
let's say technical areas, like thinking about AI in Russian versus thinking about AI in English. Do you see any difference? I don't I don't think there is. Honestly, I feel like it's almost a different part of my brain that's occupied with an entirely different language. No, I understand. Yeah. So I don't think there's much overlap. Um uh, there is probably some overlap, but it's not necessarily instantly engaged. Uh did you say programming languages count or no? No. I mean <laughs> they are they're strictly speaking languages. So you find it easier to think about AI in Python? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, no, I wish I wish some more things in, in human behavior boiled down to Python. Um, let's say we collectively as a species are wildly successful with AI and you interpret that as you want. What does the world look like in, in 10 to 20 years uh, if everything goes well? Taking AI in general, I think I'm almost reminded of that little story by Ray Bradbury. Are you familiar with the felt? I know Ray Bradbury, but not that story now. It's it's a story about this sort of a smart house that is able to entertain the children while the parents are away, but it's doing such a good job at the entertainment that it's able to simulate everything, including the um, an entire set of imagination from the kids as provided, including the savannah, the lions, the giraffes, anything that they want. And Unfortunately, the story, I believe, is a little dystopian that uh, the smart house is able to do a little too good of a job and then it goes haywire. Um, however, you know, being a forever an optimist, I think if, if that were to be true, uh, we would be able to have a much, much more efficient, much more smarter way of organizing the world around us and around our daily needs. That's where I think the AI is headed towards. And, and if we do it right. You yeah. see that as being really, really positive. I think so too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, again, in the evidence is, is that humans are very, very bad at predicting what they're going to like and dislike, you know? And so there are a lot of people I know who think like, well, that's, that's horrible. I want to deal with, you know, real humans and I, I would never try. And yet <laughs> it's amazing how how effective it can be and how, how yeah, how productive. Yeah, I think it uh, wasn't the original... Um... Chat GPT written in the 80s to be kind of a therapist. Uh, I believe it was called Eliza at the time. If you're familiar with that story, it's like, um, what if we had a therapist that you could talk to mm-hmm. any time of the day, any time when you needed it, and it would be able to give you, uh, to provide help in a therapeutic sense. Um, that is kind of where the first ch- ch- chatbots came from. And uh, I don't, yeah. I think that is um, that would be immensely helpful. Yeah, that's I love the story about the the early um, chatbots that were just doing what's called Rogerian therapy, which is they just repeat back what you said, but as a question, and how do you feel about that? Exactly. Yeah, and it still helps people. Um, mm-hmm. Which, yeah, that that's intriguing. What? Let me ask you. You know, there's this interesting. Um, uh, you, Douglas Adams. I don't know if, if you've ever read Douglas Adams, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the notion that there's this creature called the Babelfish that allows anybody to talk to anybody else. And I remember this this fantastic statement of, as a result, it was responsible for more death and destruction <laughs> than any other creature. So the, the notion of like being able to communicate to anybody anywhere may not be an, an unmitigated good. Mm-hmm. The reverse also is, is true in that sense. Where, where do you think language fails us since you're interested in linguistics? Uh, first of all, I remember Babelfish when that was a service before Google Translate came around. Yeah, okay. Not sure if it was still incorporated into it, but 
I think conveying emotions in a way that some words are just not translatable from one language to another. Mm. And some of the concepts are really unique. For example, most recently I was talking to somebody from um, Norway or Finland, one of the Scandinavian countries, I forget which one. And they have a separate word for the steam that comes off of the rocks in the sauna. And that was a fascinating concept to me as they were explaining about it for maybe 20 minutes and the different ways of using that word in a sentence. Mm-hmm. None of them existed in English. I think that's an interesting um, intercultural sort of aspect of translation that needs to be, I don't know if it needs to be addressed or it's just something needs to be taken for, you know, as is. Right, right. Back to this, this almost saber war of hypothesis. Okay, then let me ask you this. Is there is there a word that's missing in how we think about AI? And here's what I mean. Um, is there is there something about AI uh, that you think uh, we would capture more easily if we had a word for that? Yeah, the only word that comes to mind is the alternative AI or alternative uh, intelligence. Okay, that's interesting. That is anchored in that there was a fail, like a movement saying that fake news is not really fake. It's actually news, except it's not real news. It's alternative news. Right. So in a way, they're just trying to argue linguistically that one word is better than the other. And I think maybe artificial in artificial intelligence is not the correct way of necessarily describing intelligence because it is not necessarily artificial in that it just came out of nowhere. It is. Right. It was right. made by you know us. So it was pre-programmed or it manifested itself <laughs> from the work that humans did. So maybe it's not necessarily artificial, but alternative. Alternative intelligence. Yeah. Slight um, change. Yeah. The acronym still works. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, we don't have to go uh, re- rebrand our logo or anything. That, that's that's quite useful. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's end on this then. Do Do you think you will ever have an AI that's a best friend? I definitely hope so. I think. I think a lot of therapy these days is basically having a best friend that you pay money for. But <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think it would be really helpful to have somebody like Jarvis that we discussed to help you navigate your day, help with logbook keeping or journaling, help you with um, all kinds of daily tasks. And I think, um, yeah, I think that would really be helpful for the humanity in large. All right. Well, with that, I think uh, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me today. It's fascinating to get some insights into you as a human being and a human behind AI at ISI. And I think you really you really brought the human. And I, I appreciate that tremendously. Thank you. It's very nice talking to you. Thank you, listeners, again, for joining us for another episode of the AI Insiders. Please tune in next time when we'll continue to investigate, learn more about, and hopefully better understand the humans who are behind AI and who are going to be hopefully responsible for helping us to continue to navigate this interesting time that we're in and hopefully realize a collectively better future for all of us. Until next time, fight on.